Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. And we went all the way up to verse 24. We finished verse 23 and we kind of left before getting into verse 24. So we're going to start in John chapter 1 and verse 24. But before we do, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to give some background to kind of bring you up to speed. Maybe you weren't here for session number 1, 2, 3, or 4, uh, or all of them. We have seen the doctrine of Christ's preexistence going up in the book of John chapter 1 up to this point. We've seen his preexistence, his deity, that he is the creator, that he is the life and light of men, and that John the Baptist was his witness bearer. Now tonight we're going to focus a little bit more on John the Baptist. Um, but we've already seen that he was the one to bear witness of that light that should come into the world, Jesus the Messiah. John was his witness bearer. We also saw in the most previous session that when John was questioned, he was questioned by the Pharisees, and they said, who are you? And he says, he's not Christ, he's not that prophet that should come, and he's not Elijah in the flesh. Okay? So John denied all of these things. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not that prophet that Moses spoke of. Um, and he said that he was not Elijah in the flesh. Now what's interesting, and we studied this a little bit, and I have the references here if you want to look it up sometime, although Jesus does say that John was the fulfillment of that prophecy. We read that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus himself says, well, I tell you, Elijah came already, and it was John the Baptist. And we find that exact quotation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 and 14. Um, we're, not going, we're not going to go into that right now. But this is kind of the background of John. This is the background of this conversation he's having with the Pharisees and Sadducees in, in, in John chapter 1, when they come to question him, namely the Pharisees. John says he is the one crying in the wilderness. So that's his response. I'm not this. I'm not this. I'm not this. Well, then what are you? He says, I am the one, the voice, crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, prepare ye in the desert a highway for our God. And he would say to the pe people of Judah, behold your God. So he was the one to prepare the way of the Messiah. This is where we pick it up in verse 24. Let's go ahead and read verses 24. Uh, through 28. 
it says, and they that were sent were of the Pharisees. Okay, so these that are questioning John, these that are talking to him, they're of the Pharisees. Verse 25, and they asked him and said unto him, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? So their whole question is, why are you baptizing then? Okay, and this is going to be very interesting tonight. I'm very excited to show you the context of John's baptism. Okay. Um, why are you baptizing, they say in verse 25, uh, if thou be not the Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you, whom you know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. We read elsewhere, John is in the wilderness of Judea, okay, baptizing. We were near there in Israel, um, near the place of Jericho. You know, the, the city of Jericho, okay, the walls came tumbling down and all that. Um, that city of Jericho is near to the river Jordan in the area where John was baptizing. It's in the wilderness of Judea, okay, the southern uh, part of the river Jordan before it goes into the Dead Sea. So, what's the context of this. What is the background? Is this, is this something new? When the Pharisees came to him, they didn't say, okay, John, what in the world is this brand new thing that you're doing? What is this new uh, type of a tradition that you're trying to start, that you're trying to commence? Why are you doing this brand new thing? They didn't say that. They said, why are you baptizing them? Baptism, I have a message that I preach called baptism is Jewish. Okay? And believe it or not, it is. And when this night is over, you're going to know that, okay, through and through. Um, okay, the context of John's baptism. Now, to baptize, we get our English word to baptize from the Greek word baptizo, okay? It sounds very similar to baptize. Does anybody know, can somebody raise their hand and tell me what the definition of baptizo or baptize literally means in one word or two words? Wow, you guys are good. I'm impressed. To immerse. That is exactly parallel to the Hebrew taval. Okay? Taval. To dip, plunge, or immerse. It's used in 2 Kings 5, and if you want to look at this sometime on your, on your own, it's a, it's a neat application of this very same word. The Hebrew equivalent, or shall I say the origin of baptizo, is taval. Okay? Used in 2 Kings 5 when Elisha, or Elisha, if you want to speak, pronounce it in the Hebrew, Elisha, told Naaman to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River. To wash, okay, is that word taval, to dip, to plunge, to immerse. It was always to dip, plunge, and immerse. And when you see tonight what I'm going to show you, even in modern Judaism, nowhere in the whole thing is there ever some kind of sprinkling. Never. Never in the Hebrew origin of all, never in baptizo. It's always to immerse, to dunk, to plunge. Okay? Um, and we see this here, uh, what Naaman was told to do in the Jordan River. Now, I got a couple of verses that I want to show you in a second. Um, but before I do, if taval, okay, can everybody say that? Taval. Okay, you'll have to forgive me. I'm a Hebrew teacher, so you're going to learn Hebrew tonight whether you want to or not, okay? Oh, praise the Lord. Okay. So, taval is the action. Taval is 
to plunge, to dip, to immerse. Taval is to baptize, baptizo, okay? So the Pharisees, they may have very well been asking John, um, why are you, you know, tevalecha? Why are you, why are you, why are you baptizing? Why are you, you know, there's a, there's a prayer. There's a prayer in the Jewish uh, religion when they do this act, this baptism, and I'm going to show you what it's all about. When they do it, there is a prayer where at the end of the prayer, they, they talk about the mitzvah or the good work of tevilah. Tevilah comes from taval. God commanded them to plunge, to dunk, to immerse. Okay, So that's the action. The action is taval. But the place, the place is what's become more identified with the action. Like we would have, you know, like a baptismal font, okay? So like in your church, if you have something, you know, up behind the platform or stage where people are baptized, maybe you did it in a river or wherever, that would be the location, okay? The location, the baptismal font, that is the mikvah, okay? That is the place. So the action is taval, to dip, to plunge, to dunk, to immerse, to baptize, taval. The place is the mikvah, okay? The place is the mikvah. I want to show you some scriptural background of this word mikvah, okay? Here's a verse, Genesis 1.10. You have it there in your handout, okay? And it says, And God called the dry land, this is from Genesis chapter 1, And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was very good. Guess what? The word mikvah is hidden in this verse. Somebody want to raise their hand and tell me where they think mikvah may be within Genesis chapter 1, verse 10? Waters, seas, okay. Okay. The gathering together of the waters is one word, mikvah. Okay. The gathering together of the waters. Okay, let's try another one. Exodus chapter 7, verse 19, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, boy, there's multiple choice in this one, upon their ponds, upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Okay, so where's mikvah? Find the mikvah. Pools of water. Okay. I believe here it's stated mikvah mayim, pools of water. Okay. Or gathering together of water. Um, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus 11. Okay. Now, when I had kids, okay, and if you have kids or grandkids, or you were a kid at one point, okay? Um, sickness in families tends to what? Travel all around. It, it goes through everybody, and then maybe sometimes it comes back again. There was one time where I got sick, and then our kids and my wife eventually all got it, and it was like two weeks later, and it came back to me again. And it hit me harder than the first time. So after that, I became germaphobic, okay? Um, <laughs> you know, hand sanitizer, our kids call it hand sanitizer, or, um, you know, I would just, 
I don't want to touch anything. You know, I just became so, I'm, I'm not that much anymore. Not as much, okay? I don't want to say I'm not that much, because I probably am. But not as much, okay? Um, how many of you are like that? Okay, germophobic, claustrophobic, okay. Nope, okay, it was a little bit, a little bit, okay. How many of you are, 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 are somewhat claustrophobic, don't like, you know, closed-in spaces? Okay, metaphorically, Leviticus 11, okay, metaphorically, symbolically, this is like a claustrophobic, germophobic section of scripture, okay? And I'm going to prove it to you in a second, okay? Let's start in verse number four, and I'm just going to skim through reading some phrases, okay? Verse four, end of verse, well, let's read the whole verse, verse four. Nevertheless, and this whole chapter is about what's unclean, okay? Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the hoof, as the camel, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof. He is unclean unto you. End of verse 5, unclean unto you. End of verse 6, unclean unto you. Verse 7, unclean unto you. Verse 8, of their flesh shall ye not eat, of their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean unto you. Verse 10, all these that have not fins and scales in the seas and in the rivers, of all that move in the waters, and of any, any living thing which is in the waters, they shall be an abomination unto you. End of verse 12, shall be an abomination unto you. End of verse 13, they are an abomination. Verse 20, end of verse 20, shall be an abomination unto you. Verse 23, but all other flying creeping things which have four feet shall be an abomination unto you. Verse 24, and for these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth the carcass of them shall be unclean until the even. End of verse 25, unclean until the even. Verse 26, and are unclean unto you. Everyone that toucheth them shall be unclean. End of verse 27, be unclean until the even. Verse 28, be unclean until the even. They are unclean unto you. These also shall be unclean unto you among the creeping things that creep upon the earth. Verse 31, these are unclean un unto you among all that creep. Whosoever doth touch them, when they be dead, shall be unclean until the even. And upon whatsoever any of them, when they are dead, doth fall, it shall be unclean, whether it be any vessel of wood or raiment or skin or sack, whatsoever vessel it be. So it's like, you know, you ever hear the norovirus? Okay, that's like the horrible, horrible one, okay? So like, well, here, I'll tell you another story. You remember the uh, Ebola outbreak? Remember there was a nurse? Guess where she was? She was in Cleveland, okay? She flew to Cleveland, I think, from Dallas or something. Um, without realizing that she was infected with Ebola. And she flew into Cleveland, the Cleveland International Airport, and like the very next day after she went through there, I think it was the very next day, we were scheduled to fly to Israel from Cleveland. So, you know, I'm walking through the thing and I'm thinking, she probably touched this, she probably touched this. I'm going to have Ebola. I'm going to, you know, get sick on the plane. Maybe it's just motion sickness, but then I'll think it's Ebola. Everybody else will think it's Ebola and they'll stop the plane somewhere, you know, over the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know. Just like uh, the worst case scenario went through my mind. And you do that sometimes, you know, you go to a place and I don't know, our kids like the play place at Chick-fil-A and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, you know, what's in there that they're going to bring home? Uh, you know, as far as like a virus or something, okay? So you're a Jewish person, okay, in the time of Moses, and you're reading all these things or hearing all these things of what's unclean, this is unclean, this is unclean. If what's unclean touches your table and you touch that, it's like you got the norovirus, okay? I mean, it's like if you touch something that's unclean that touched something else that was unclean, you touch it, you're unclean. And it's just like this 
it's closing in on you. It's like, what can't I do? What can I, what, what can I touch? What can I be involved with? Uh, end of verse 33, shall be unclean. Verse 34, shall be unclean. Shall be unclean. Verse 35, everything whereupon any part of their carcass falleth shall be unclean. Whether it be oven or ranges or pots, they shall be broken down, for they are unclean and shall be unclean unto you. And then we see verse number 36. Nevertheless, a fountain or pit wherein there is plenty of water. Okay, somebody want to take a guess on what that word is there? Mikvah. Okay, plenty of water shall be what? Clean. Wow, what a difference. Yes. So, so basically, I mean, if, say you had, I don't know, a mole, okay? Not like a mole on your face, but a mole animal, okay? That like died in one of your drinking vessels, okay? Uh, I don't know why that would happen, but just say for sake of illustration that it did. So that's unclean now, okay? Now, if you, if you do this mikvah action, okay? You taval, okay, the dip and plunge into the mikvah, you may still have mole germs and fragments and just gross stuff in there. But guess what? If you do this action, <clears throat> no matter if you have disinfectant dish soap in there or whatever you might do nowadays, you know, you might scrub it, that doesn't matter. You put it in there, God says it's clean. So it's all about ritual cleanness. It's not about physical cleanness. You know, you go in the water a dry center, you come up a wet center, right? But it always, okay, this and baptism, it always has to do with a symbol of your obedience to God, okay? I mean, that, that vase or whatever that had the mold die in it, okay, was still just as dirty as all get out. It was just not clean, physically maybe, but you do this action and ritually, ritually, in God's eyes, it's clean because you did this, what, what he said to do, okay? Um, so, the mikvah is used for ritual purification. This is where baptism came from, okay? This is what John was doing, but it had a different, a different reason, okay, than touching something that was unclean. Um, this right here is a picture of a modern mikvah, okay? You go to a synagogue, okay, the last thing you'd think you would ever find in a synagogue is a baptismal font. <laughs> Okay, but yet there it is, okay? Um, if you've been to Israel, there's mikvot, okay, many mikvahs all over the place. Um, by the southern steps of the temple, they're uncovering mikvahs everywhere, okay? These ritual baths. Do you remember like Qumran and, you know, the sect that was there, the Sons of Light or something, you know, and the Essenes? Those different groups, they were so into this ritual purification that they had multiple mikvahs on their compound. It was like a community, you know, like a communal living, and there was multiple, multiple mikvahs. They would go to the mikvah before they ate. After they ate, they would go back to the mikvah. I mean, they would do it multiple times a day, just one person, 
because they wanted to be ritually clean in God's sight, in God's eyes. I have a video that I'm going to show you here. And then we'll be done with the, the slide presentation portion of it. beginning there was a little bit water. Um, the red one and water surrounds major moments in our lives in Jewish life there's a holy the red one pool called the red a mikvah. Um, going to on the mikvah mixing board is the, a mitzvah, the red uh, or commandment that is linked to conversion marriage and women's monthly cycles some people also immerse in mikvahs to commemorate personal transitions to mark changes or challenges brought on by illness or loss and to prepare spiritually for Shabbat or Yom Kippur so what makes this pool so special? A mikveh isn't just a swimming hole. The tradition goes back thousands of years, and the ancient rabbis delineated specific rules about what makes a mikveh. It needs enough water inside to cover a person's entire body. At least some of the water must come directly from a natural source, like a spring, or rainwater, or melted snow or ice, filtered to be warm and clean. The ocean will do nicely too, find a calm spot and be safe. How do you take the plunge? Inside the preparation room, remove all your clothing, jewelry, makeup, contact lenses, bandages, and so on. The idea is to remove anything that could come between your body and the water as best you can. After you're undressed, shower or bathe. Then you'll usually wait in a prep room. It's time to prepare spiritually, emotionally, and mentally to set an intention for the experience. When you are ready, a mikvah guide will answer any questions you may have and walk you through the procedure. Don't be afraid to ask questions. There are seven steps leading into the mikvah. Step down, immerse yourself fully, and then come up for air. There is a traditional blessing said for the first dunk. Sephardi Jews say it before immersing, and Ashkenazi Jews say it after. Some people also say another prayer, Shehechianu. Then you go back under. Some people dunk three times, others dunk more. Each time, make sure your entire body and all your hair is completely covered with water. Afterwards, some people have a custom not to dry off, to take a few drops of the experience home with them. So there was multiple occasions where somebody would go to the mikvah. Okay. Um, Multiple occasions. So, um, and one of those was when you convert to Judaism, um, getting ready for a marriage ceremony. Maybe um, you're going to be a priest. Okay? Somebody that would go into the priesthood, enter into the priesthood, they would go to the mikvah all the time. But there would be, interestingly enough, an event where they would go to the mikvah as a commencement of their priesthood. Okay? So, um, let's look at some verses here, and I guess I'll keep you in suspense. Um, why was Jesus baptized? That's on the other side of the page, okay? So don't look there yet. <laughs> okay, but this should all tie in. You can go back to John chapter 1, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through some verses that I have here on your handout. These verses also, believe it or not, contain the word mikvah. Okay? The first one is 1 Chronicles 29, 15. It says this, 
For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. That's a hard one. Pick up the mikvah in that verse. I'll tell you, okay? It's the word abiding. Okay? It's the word abiding. Now, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 15, carries with it the same idea of mikvah as these two verses in Jeremiah. So let's look at these verses in Jeremiah, and maybe, maybe we can get a little bit more of an insight into what it's talking about. Oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble, why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Okay, anybody want to take a stab at that one? If you've heard my baptism spiel before, you would know, maybe. Anybody? Yes. Okay. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, when it says there is none abiding, they're basically saying there's no hope. We're in a dire situation. There's no hope. But in Jeremiah chapter 14 and verse 8, who is it talking about? It's talking about the Savior. The hope of Israel. That is what God is called here. The hope of Israel. And it's the word mikvah. Okay? Mikveh Israel, the hope of Israel. Why do you think, and these words are correlated, okay? Plenty of water, um, pools of water, gathering together of seas, okay? Why would that have anything to do with hope? Well, if you think about it in light of Leviticus chapter number 11, the mikveh was hope, okay? It was hope of being clean. It was hope of being redeemed. It was hope of being right with God that they couldn't find anywhere else. You could scrub with whatever disinfectant you wanted, take a shower or whatever, but if you didn't do this ritual cleansing, okay, at the mikvah, you had no hope of being clean from that uncleanness. Um, unless, it's ran its, unless it ran its course, but you would be unclean. And so here, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, also, O Lord, and that's Jehovah, okay, capital L-O-R-D, O Lord, the hope of Israel, mikvah, all that forsake thee, listen to this, this is, this is great, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the what? The fountain of living waters. Now I'll tell you something about living waters. Living waters is fun to say, okay, in Hebrew, because it's mayim chayim, okay? It's living water, but it's literally, it, 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 it's, it's looked at as water that moves, okay? Water that moves, like a spring, okay? Remember, remember that, that video, okay, when they're talking about the rabbinical regulations for a mikvah, okay? It can't just be stagnant, it has to be a natural source of water, and the best, the best ideal kind is one that has some kind of a spring or some kind of flowing water. Okay? But God himself is the fountain of living waters. He says, uh, I believe it's in Jeremiah, that his people have committed two evils, that they had forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves out broken cisterns, okay? broken mikvahs, okay, broken wells, that the water all leaks out. They can't hold their own water. 
in everything they're trying to substitute the Lord with. You know, everybody has this vacuum inside. We need to have something to worship. And we try and fill that void with broken wells that don't even hold any water. And God says, I am the fountain of living waters, both there and here. And what did Jesus say? That if somebody would come to him to drink, he would never thirst again. Because he is the fountain of living waters. And out of that person's belly would flow living rivers of living water. Okay? So it's all connected to this being clean before God. It's an amazing thought. And so, back to John. Verse 25 of chapter 1. They asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then? Why are you doing this immersion? Okay? And we'll get there as well on the other side of the sheet. Okay? Um, let's look at verse 29 of John chapter 1. Okay? We're going to kind of go forward and then we're going to kind of step back and, you know, what's, what's the word? Uh, we'll contemplate what we've just read. Okay? Uh, verse 29, it says, the next day. What's the next day? Well, the day after his being grilled by the Pharisees, okay? The next day after his inquisition, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So there is a direct correlation. There's so many correlations. I mean, man could not make this up, okay? Between the mikvah, between the baptism, between what he says about Jesus later and how Jesus baptizes, as opposed to John, um, and the idea that he is called the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, throughout history, throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, we see lots of lambs being killed, lots of lambs being slaughtered, um, foremost of which was the Passover lamb. Okay? I want to take us back to Genesis 22 when a promise is given. Okay? Genesis 22, and I have it written there for you. And I'm going to teach you some Hebrew because I think it's amazing to know exactly what they said, to know the exact words that they said. Abraham, uh, and Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, Avi, Avi, it's that orange word there, my father, Avi. And he says, Hinenibani, I'm here, my son. Okay? I just want you to sense the drama that's going on here because we can just read it, you know, he said, my father, he said, here, my, my son. You know, it's just like, if you want to realize that these are real people, okay, if I think about my son, okay, if I think of Evan right there, yes, I just said your name. <laughs> if God told me, take now thy son, just pretend for a minute that he's my only son. He's not. My other son's back there, okay? Take now thy son, thine only son, Evan, whom thou lovest, and sacrifice him for a burnt offering on the, on the mountain that I will show you. What did Abraham do? Well, the next morning he got up early and he went to sacrifice his son. So he's taking his son to the Mount Moriah, okay? The mountain that God shows him. They're going up together. And then Isaac says this, Hine'esh, here's the fire, v'ha'etzim, and the wood, where is the lamb? Le'ola, for the burnt offering. Where is the lamb? 
you can just imagine this, this boy, this lad, uh, some assume that he was a teenager or maybe even up to 30, okay, somewhere in between. He may have been my age, who knows. But for him to say, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where's the lamb, okay? Listen to Abraham's response. Elohim, your Elo. God will provide for himself, Haseh. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So, and, and, and Mark's taught about this before. If you've ever been to Israel, you've heard Mark's teaching on this. But what was caught in the thicket at the last minute? A ram. Okay. Not a lamb. Okay. And here, where it says God will provide, okay, God will provide, that's future tense. And to even drive it down further, a little bit later in the passage, what does Abraham call this place? He calls it Yehovah Yireh, God will provide. Okay, and another translation of that exact same phrase is God will see it. We'll see. And that's why later in the verse it says, in the mount of the Lord, it shall, future tense, be seen. Okay? So there is a lamb that God had yet to provide. And what, is, what does John say here? He's the one that is to prepare the way of the Messiah. He's the one to say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He's the one to say, make straight in the desert a pathway for our God. He sees Jesus and he says, behold, he's here, the Lamb of God, the one that's going to take away all of our sin, the one that's going to forever vanquish our sin debt that we have against God that we cannot pay. Okay, flip the page over. Verse 29, John seeth Jesus and saith, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, he could have just said here, the sin of Israel, the sin of Judah, but he doesn't. I, for one, am very thankful. We should all be thankful. He's taken away the sin of Andrew and Fuquay, okay, in Willow Spring. He's taken away the sin of the whole world. He's taken away the sin of the people in 2016. Uh, even Hillary, if she would trust him as Savior, okay? Uh, there's nobody too far that God cannot reach until that final, you know, moment where death closes the door for that opportunity. But, you know, I, I, I don't like it when people talk about the doctrine of limited atonement. I didn't plan on talking about this, but there are those that would teach that Jesus died for only a select few, those who would believe on him, and those are the ones that he shed his blood for. But for, you know, different people who have not accepted Christ, people that pass on into eternity lost, Jesus didn't die for them. I think that's heretical. I mean, where else in Scripture, how, how can it say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Um, he's the propitiation for our sin, but not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Anybody, okay? Uh, I've heard the phrase said before that his blood is sufficient for all, but effectual to only those that would trust in him, to those that it's applied to. But he died for everybody. Um, 
I don't know, uh, to say that, you know, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the elect. It just doesn't fit. Um, okay. And then he says in verse 30, in verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, listen to this, for he was before me. Now, to us, I mean, this is, this is the choir that I'm talking to here, I'm pretty sure. So, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was here. I can. I didn't realize it was still going. That's okay. I'll just do this. Thank you. If you're anything like me, I'm easily distracted. So, and especially when, you know, I'm, I'm the one teaching. I, I mean, it's, it's selfish, but I don't want people to be distracted, you know, when it's hard enough to pay attention to me anyway. <laughs> so, thank you. Oh, and by the way, okay, our brother Glenn here, he had the chance to see Mike Pence speak, and he chose Dan Bergman instead. So, he said, I'm privileged. <laughs> anyway, I'm honored. Um, okay, so. John says Jesus was before him. Now, when was John conceived slash born? I have it right there in front of you. Yes, six months earlier. John the Baptist was Jesus' older cousin. Okay, older as far as the flesh is concerned. But for those that heard John speak, when he says those things, it's an, it's an amazing truth. To us, it doesn't really hit us as much because we're so familiar with it. But the fact that right here, John is saying, Jesus was before me. Micah 5.2, it says, talking about the birthplace of the Messiah, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be littlest among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me him who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. He is God. He is Jehovah in human flesh. And he is from eternity past. Of course, he is older than John. Okay? He was before John is basically what he's saying here in verse 30. Now, let's get to the nitty-gritty. Okay? Why was John baptizing? To answer their question. Why are you baptizing if you're not Christ? If you're not uh, that prophet? If you're not Elijah? Why are you baptizing? Two reasons. Number one. It's a sign of repentance, okay? It's a sign of repentance. Let's look at this passage here from Matthew chapter 3. I have it on your, your handout. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins, okay? So, and these are all Jewish people, by the way. They're coming to him from all over Judea to the river Jordan, and as they're being baptized, they're confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Okay, John's demand was that the person that was going to be baptized would be repentant. It would be a sign of their repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, 
For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now is the axe laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit. Now what fruit did he just talk about? Fruits of repentance. Okay. Every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Okay. What is, what is this baptism? What is this, this dunking in the river Jordan that he's doing? It's commemorating or it's being used as a sign to show their inward repentance. We're sorry, Lord. We're unclean before you. We're spiritually unclean. It doesn't matter if I, you know, touch some dead thing or whatever. I have all kinds of other sin in my life. And so they're confessing their sin. They're repenting of it. They're turning from it. And the sign of that repentance, that outward sign, is we're going to John, and John is taking us to this mikvah. And we're going in the water, okay? We're going down as a dry sinner. We're coming up a wet sinner, okay? But we're showing everybody, hey, I want to obey God. I want to be clean before him, and I am sorry for my sin, okay? That's the first, that's the first part. John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, Jesus is who he's talking about, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now when it says that Jesus was going to baptize them with the Holy Ghost and fire, what's, what's that talking about? Well, there's a couple of different schools of thought regarding this idea of baptizing with fire, okay? There are those that would say, well, that's the, that's the sign gifts, namely the speaking in tongues and other things when the Holy Spirit appeared over them with cloven tongues as a fire, you know, as a sign that they had received the Holy Ghost. But here, and this is what I'm a proponent of, if you look in this passage, especially the last verse and a half, what, is, what seems to be the stress? What seems to be the focus? Well, it's the idea of judgment. It's the idea of judgment. So when he talks about Christ, and we know um, elsewhere that he said, I must decrease and he must increase. And that comes out here. He's lifting Christ up to where he needs to be and saying that he's mightier than I. I'm only baptizing with water unto repentance, but he... He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, okay? Um, I read something this afternoon that was interesting to me, something that I never really caught um, or never really thought about before. When you're saved, okay, when you become born again, you become born of above, born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. And the Bible calls that being baptized with the Holy Ghost, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just as you're dunked into the water, okay, you become immersed in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you as an earnest of the inheritance of our salvation. Jesus said he's the comforter. He shall be in you. He shall dwell with you. But the interesting thing is, is the Holy Ghost the one that does that? Look at this verse. It's interesting. He, who's he? Jesus. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost is not the one doing the baptizing. The Holy Ghost is analogous to the water. OK? 
Okay? Jesus is the one that does the baptizing. You trust Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah, and according to the Bible, Jesus is the one that makes the transaction of you receiving the Holy Ghost. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of blew my mind there. Um, it's kind of neat to think of Jesus baptizing. I've been baptized by Jesus with the Holy Ghost. That's biblical. Okay? And it only happens once at salvation. Okay? Um, all right. So. Uh, whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus and he sees his eyes as flames of fire. You ever hear that song, I Can Only Imagine? Okay, and it talks about all these different things. What if I'll do this? What if I'll dance? What if I'll sing? What if I'll, you know, fall down before him? What happened to John? John, John lived with Jesus in the flesh for three and a half years. He, he leaned upon his breast at the Last Supper Passover meal. He was that close to him. He knew him intimately. And yet when John sees him, what does John do? He falls down as dead. I mean, he was horrified. He was petrified, literally. What makes us think that we're going to have a leg up on that? <laughs> you know? Uh, I would say without a doubt, when we see Christ, I mean, it's just going to be... You can't even you can't even imagine, um, but uh, you know we think of we think of Christ, and it's been incredible to hear some of Mark's teaching. I hope he's listening uh, <laughs> on you know the man that comes from Bozrah with his garments dyed red, and the judgment and the wrath of God that is committed to Jesus to bring upon the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the Lord, at His second coming. Um, all the judgment has been committed to the Son. Okay, and so it's not just, um, you know, Jesus in a field with the little children, although that is an amazing contrast to the other side of the coin, which is his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment. Um, and John is, 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 is sure to bring that up, to mention that uh, in his speaking here uh, to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3. So, number one, why was John baptizing? A sign of repentance. Number two, to manifest the coming of Messiah to Israel. Okay? Verse number 31, John chapter number 1. It says, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. I'm doing this mikvah, okay, in the River Jordan, to all these Jewish people that would come. And, and, and what was John preaching? He was preaching repentance. Get ready. Messiah is coming. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Behold your God. He's coming. And then when he's here, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's always pointing to Christ. And so his baptism, this, this whole show, it wasn't a show, but the whole outward visible action of baptizing all these Jewish people in Jordan was saying, you're unclean. The Messiah is coming. Get ready now. Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. So it wasn't just him saying repent and putting people in water. It was so much more deep than that. There was a deep connection ingrained in the Jewish mind between this idea of the mikvah and being ritually clean. What John is saying is you're not clean. He's not saying come down here, just kind of an outward action, superficial, get in the water, come out, and you're good to go. 
but bring forth fruit meet for repentance. Show that you are repentant inside. That's what he said to the Pharisees. Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit meet for repentance. Um, so that's what it was all about. He baptized unto repentance, um, saying you're unclean. You need to be clean because the Messiah is coming. Okay? It's kind of like you ever been in a church service? I was in a number of church services before I was saved. Um, you know, and I'd hear invitations and things. Um, but you get a sense of the holiness of God as a, as a lost person. And it's all of a sudden you feel like, what do I do? I mean, I am just undone before God. I am guilty. Now, thankfully, if you trust the Lord, <laughs> that feeling is just gone because he takes that load. He takes that burden off your shoulders that you've carried your whole life. But um, what John is trying to communicate here is you're not right with God. You Jewish people, you need to get ready because the Messiah is, is here. He's around the corner. In fact, the next day when he sees him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, so a sign of repentance and to manifest the coming of Messiah to Israel. Now, I have some verses here uh, in Matthew chapter 3, so you don't have to turn there. But why was Jesus baptized? Yes, that's part of it. We're going to kind of try and cover it here. In Matthew chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there because the verse is right there. When Jesus was baptized, what did he say unto John? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Um, Jesus did all of those things. You remember Mark talking about um, Sukkot, okay? Um, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, and how it was... Uh, it was a pilgrimage feast where all the Jewish people were supposed to come to Jerusalem, okay, to celebrate this. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus would be there. Why did, why did they know that he would be there? Well, if it's commanded to do it and Jesus didn't do it, we're up the creek without a paddle. We're lost. It's as simple as that. We're on our way to hell. Jesus did all those things. He was perfectly sinless, fulfilling all of the law. You know, if we, if, if we miss one point, we've broken the whole thing. We've broken all of them, okay? And yet Jesus, he not only didn't break those commandments, but, you know, kind of on the other side of that, he kept all of it. He kept every single point to a T. And we've talked about before in this Bible study, you know, Jesus' kingship, okay, being the king, being the king of Israel but also his priesthood, okay? He's our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He makes intercession for us. He's not only the priest, but the sacrifice as well. And so when does Jesus come to John to be baptized? Well, it's at the beginning of his earthly ministry, around 30 years of age. And we heard before, I believe we did, I know Mark's mentioned it once or twice, uh, how old was the priest when they were allowed to begin their priestly service? 30 years old, okay? Uh, in, 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 in biblical days and as well as, you know, now, you know, people that are training for the priesthood or orthodox rabbis and so on, if they're going to do something, 
you know, begin a new part of their life or especially enter into service for God, guess where they go? To the mikvah. Okay? It had nothing to do with Jesus having sin. It had nothing to do with Jesus being unclean. It was a commencement. It was a commencement of his earthly ministry. Um, why was he baptized? I have here three reasons. The same reason he was circumcised. Why was Jesus circumcised? Well, he fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law in every point. It was, in a way, his formal inauguration into earthly ministry, okay, to commence that, to begin it. And then thirdly, this is kind of a, a side point, but he was putting his stamp of approval on John's preaching and teaching, on everything that John was doing. Jesus is saying, this is true. This is right. I am the Lamb of God. I am the Messiah. I am validating what John was teaching. So in verses number 32 through 34 uh, of John chapter 1, we see John's validation of Jesus, which is kind of parallel to this Matthew passage. And we'll look at that in a second as well. But verse 32 of John chapter 1, it says, And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And then we, uh, uh, we didn't go this verse yet, verse 33, And I knew him not, but that he sent me to baptize with water. The same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So there is another reference to Jesus being the one that does the baptizing with the Holy Ghost. And I saw on bare record that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is validating John, but John is validating Jesus. He's validating what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, because John was commissioned to baptize. We see it right here in this verse. John was told by the Lord to do this. It says here, he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. John was sent to baptize by the Lord. It wasn't just something he said, Oh, I'm going to go to the wilderness of Judea and I'm going to start baptizing people. It was something that God had told him to do. God not only told him to baptize, but God told him, When you see the Spirit of God descending upon him and remaining, that's the guy. That's the one. And we see that happen at the baptism of Jesus. We have this right here at the end here. I'm kind of skipping around, but verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3, uh, written at the bottom of your page there. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well, ple well pleased. Now we think we have this kind of picture and there's paintings that have been done of like a dove landing on Jesus' shoulders, okay? It's saying the Spirit of God descended like a dove. It doesn't say that the Spirit of God took on the form of a dove or was a dove. It's just that's the way that it kind of came down and descended upon him. Now I think that we have scriptural evidence here in John chapter 1 that the Holy Ghost being visibly seen upon Jesus, at least by John, was something that occurred here, but also before that point. Okay? I think we have scriptural evidence that when John sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, I believe that there was some kind of sign as well with this that the Spirit of God was upon Jesus and John could see it. 
Because here in John chapter 1 it says, The same that said unto me to baptize with water, said, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. So it wasn't like, by the way, John, after you say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, after you point everybody to him, after you say that this is the guy, then when you go ahead and baptize him, I'm going to show you that this is, this is the one. In case you were not, weren't sure, this is the one that baptizes with the Holy Ghost. I think that based on this passage, that was how God was going to show John that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the one. Um, maybe, maybe not, but it's an interesting thought that doesn't really enter into our minds often regarding this passage that it was a sign for John to know that Jesus was the one. And I don't think that John would have kind of been unsure when he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. It seems to me that the Lord showed him that Jesus was the one before Jesus got in the water to be baptized. Yes. And John, remember John, John kicked in the womb when they were near. Yes. Absolutely. So it's a neat thing. I mean, we're going to meet John in heaven along with Jesus. But it'll be a neat thing. We can kind of ask him, you know, what was it like when you, when you saw him, when you knew it was him? Um, it's kind of a neat idea. I don't know. I, I, think, I kind of think of John the Baptist being something like Bob, you know, rugged wilderness fella. You need to get some camel hair, maybe. Some, some locusts. Some of that date honey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it, it's amazing to, to look into this passage and see something that we're so familiar with in our Christian circles, but to realize it has an intrinsically Jewish background. So I hope that when we look in this passage, we can see that um, there's so much more depth to it before we even get to the idea of John baptizing we have a whole lot more scripture beforehand that backs up this practice. And so, what did Jesus command his disciples to do? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded unto you. So, um, it's, it's, it's amazing. We have this practice of baptism. You know, millions of Gentiles all over the world are baptizing. It didn't originate, yeah, they don't know why. It didn't originate, it didn't start with, with Gentiles. Um, so it's neat to study a lot of different things that have a Jewish background that's kind of been lost in our modern Western Christianity. Um, so trying to, trying to bring back the right context. Anybody have any questions or comments on, on what we studied? Is everybody awake still? Okay, yes sir. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that was actually another point that I, f I forgot to mention. Um, the idea of fire 
in, in, in the Bible, God being a consuming fire. Okay? There's lots of passages that talk about judgment, but there also is this idea of being refined as gold is refined and as silver is refined. For those that would trust the Lord, uh, some of them, it would be the context of when they come to trust the Lord that he would refine them. Sometimes it's through the context of coming closer to him after you're saved, that, you know, refining, purging away the dross, uh, and so on and so forth. So fire kind of is multifaceted. Um, here we see fire in a context of judgment. Now, I'm not sure, if, depending on what version you have there, when it has the word with in italics. So you can literally read it as, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm not a Hebrew scholar either, but to be able to kind of differentiate, well, it doesn't have the word or, um, but it very well could carry that meaning. Um, this is one of those scenarios where I'm not going to say 100% it is this or that. I mean, we have multiple occasions within the Bible where it's a multifaceted meaning, um, carrying with it the refining. Um, you know, maybe something having to do with um, the disciples and those that would receive the Holy Ghost on Pentecost, that they would be instantly, the, the dross would be purged away. Um, but it also could refer to judgment. Yes? Um, to me, it agrees with the, that passage I believe it's in Hebrew where it discourages every son that he receives. Mm -hmm. Yes. If anybody is so perfect on the primary place, will never be taken. I'd like to die. <laughs> yeah. God says, look out for that person. That person's not a son. They're not a true son if they don't if they don't have chastisement. Um, but that's a very good point. Um, this other thing about uh, if someone's work would be burned, they might themselves be saved, but yet so is by passing through the fire. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, we see, we see fire mentioned in regards to the judgment of the chaff, um, as well as the previous verse where it says, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, the judgment of the unsaved will be done by Jesus himself. Um, so, I'm going to say I'm certain that I'm not certain <laughs> regarding this passage. Because, and that's not a cop-out, because I, I don't want to say that it's something that it's not. Um, we see judgment mentioned here, but there is just a very strong motif throughout all of Scripture, as, as our brother mentioned, thank you for that, um, of the refinement of God using that same fire to refine, to purge away, um, you know, that's all of... Yes. Yes. Well, also in Scripture, there's different occasions where we find the wheat being the saved and the chaff being the unsaved. So it's, it, 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 it's hard to determine. Yeah, so, so, so it's, it's, it's hard to determine the exact um, context, but it's interesting uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be probably my like 75% thought, but there also is the strong idea of the, of, of the refining. But because of the context before and after that passage being judgment by fire of the unsaved uh, and unrepentant, that's where I would lean. I'm not going to say black and white, that's what it is, but I would tend to lean towards that. Yes? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Yep, I would absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, yeah, I mean, like, you know, like I said, I can, I, I can see both angles of it, you know, maybe this is one of those things, we'll just have to be like, hey, John, hey, Luke, you know, when we get to heaven, uh, or just ask Jesus, you know, what, you know, what did you mean by this? Maybe, maybe, I'm sure none of that will matter then, we'll just kind of, you know, forget about all that, but, um, but maybe we can ask him, you know? Was this fire a fire of judgment, or was it the refining fire? Well, I think the context here, too, would be that he's speaking to a crowd. And verse 15, well, in Luke, verse 15 says, Now the people in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered them. So he's talking to, I, I assume, believers and unbelievers, people who, The judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the only reason that I lean towards the judgment idea is the immediate context of, you know, fleeing from the wrath to come, the trees are thrown into the fire, the chaff is burnt with unquenchable fire. Um, Yes. He will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn. Yeah. 
So we can we, we can see uh, we can we can see when we get to heaven. You know, this is something that I'm just dying to know. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> actually, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Mm. That would be a well. From what we can tell, this is in John chapter one. He's about to gather to himself some of the disciples for the first time, um, and we read elsewhere. I think it's in the book of Matthew, where it says he was about thirty years of age at the beginning of his ministry when he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So with those parallels, we can kind of see that this baptism, him being baptized by John, is at the beginning of his earthly ministry, the very beginning. So it's kind of nice to be able to put those things in order, get a better idea of what's going on when and how it lines up with everything else. And so that's why kind of, even though this is a study of John, we're inevitably going to do some harmony of the Gospels you know, parallel passages as we go through to kind of get a better idea of what's going on. So, yep. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Baptize, teaching all nations, baptizing them, okay? America, <laughs> Somalia, whatever you want to, whatever you want to, Samaritans, you know, Clevelanders, <laughs> North Carolinians, <laughs> everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's interesting. Isn't there isn't there a passage where it says we're all baptized into one body? So that baptism is not talking about the water baptism, but the Holy Ghost baptism, being baptized into the body of Christ. Now this is where my Lutheran friends, I I, I grew up in a Lutheran youth group and I had to part ways with our youth leader who was also my sixth grade geography teacher. Because I realized that baptism doesn't save. You know, when I got saved as a teenager and I had a confrontation with them about it and they teach that baptism saves. You know, um, anyway. So we can clearly see that that, that that is not scriptural, that that is not the case. Um, and especially, you know, this, this idea of sprinkling, you know, with the water, christening kind of thing. That has no basis in scripture. We are sprinkled, though. We are sprinkled by the blood. And that's in Hebrews. Uh, so, you know. Anyway. Praise the Lord. Anybody else have any questions? or con I see a hand. Yes. Yes. I was baptized as a baby, and then when I got saved at 15, I was baptized again. Mm. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's neat, you know, just like Passover is a memorial, you know, it's not like the, the, you know, 
bread and the, and the juice actually become the body and the blood. It's a memorial. It always was. In the Jewish context, it's a memorial to remember the lamb. We're remembering Christ. We're remembering his death. We're showing his death till he come. And then baptism, it doesn't save. It's an outward showing of obedience. It's a sign of what already happened inwardly. Chris Burns, you said there's problems with that kind of distinction. Yes. Yeah. But um, there's a place in Venice, Italy, where they drowned the uh, Protestants that didn't baptize their babies because they uh, were accused of child abuse. Wow. And we got St. Paul saying that children are uh, only one who is in peril is sanctified. That doesn't mean that that's not the same way to say that when children pray to God, it says, therefore, you're Get baptized again. That's that's scriptural, I believe. Believer's baptism. I was told you might check this out too because it was the Greek, but I was told that in in when Philip baptized them in Samaria, he said when they believed Philip preaching the the words of the the name of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God in the name. They were baptized both men and women, and I believe that those words are adult words. If you're not, yeah, if you're not capable of of making that decision to trust Christ alone by faith alone for the salvation from your sin, you're not old enough to be baptized <laughs> either. You know, if you can't trust Christ first, then there's no point in you know. So that's. Yeah, yep, there's an order to it. So what's your understanding of 1 Peter 3.21? 1 Peter 3.21, is that the baptized in the... Okay, bap- well, you've got to look at the, at, at the exact wording, um, but it's a figure. Um, here, let's turn there. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. Okay, and I think that there's a passage, maybe it's afterward as well. There's a part that talks about people being baptized in the, uh, in the Red Sea. And it's just kind of an event commencing, you know, what was done there. But um, verse 21 of 1 Peter 3, actually let's look at verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient uh, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh. And this is kind of the answer. Not putting away the filth of the flesh. The baptism doesn't clean you before God. It doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. But is the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So the, the key in understanding that phrase, baptism saving, what? The key is, well, both that passage in the parentheses, but also the very beginning, the like figure, okay? It can be reworded as baptism is the like figure. Baptism is the picture of our salvation by Christ's resurrection. It can exactly be reworded in that same way. So it's basically saying, and, and we get confused because of the wording, baptism doesn't save. Baptism is the like figure of what does save, which is the resurrection of Christ. So um, there's this passage, there's a passage where it says something about as many have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. That's the passage my youth leader liked to use to say, well, look, baptism, salvation, they're equated. No, they're not. It's just saying that those that are saved, those that put on Christ, the same ones were baptized. Um, there's a passage that says something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, boy, how's it go? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall, shall be damned or, or condemned. Um, the key is the belief. So people that are proponents of baptism saving or having any part in salvation, people that are proponents of that like to read into those passages that, well, look, it says this, so that must mean baptism saves. Well, look at it in context. Look at it in context with the rest of the scripture, the teachings of scripture. Um, look at the, uh, the, the man on the cross next to Christ. Okay, Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to get baptized. He didn't get off the cross and get baptized. Um, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, confess with thy mouth, believe in thy heart, and thou shalt be saved. So, um, but to answer your question about 1 Peter 3.21, it's a, it's, it's a strange wordiness to us to try and interpret it in our English mindset. But basically what it's saying is baptism is a picture of our salvation. Baptism is a figure of our salvation. You should be able to attend a baptism as a lost person, like attend Evan's baptism, okay? You see him go in the water, buried in likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life, okay? You should be able to see that and hear a gospel message preached with that as the picture. So it's basically saying baptism is a picture of our salvation. Baptism is a like figure of what saves us, namely the resurrection of Christ. Also the answer of the good conscience for which God equates with repentance. Yes, and baptism, and baptism is, is, is the showing of that good conscience towards God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. Yes. It's an act of obedience, absolutely. And you know, to add to what was being said re regarding this First Peter passage, did the ark save Noah and his family? I mean, you could say that it did, okay. But but what really saved Noah and his family was the Lord. You see that ark; it's a picture of their salvation. It represents Noah and his family being saved just by seeing the ark. It represents Noah and his family being saved. The like figure we're into now, baptism. Okay, um, so it's a picture of, of of the resurrection of Christ. And my King James Bible says, "Saved." It says, "Saved by eight souls were saved by water, but many were being saved from water." Yeah. Sometimes it says they were saved by water. Yeah. Well, sometimes we get hung up on two things. We get hung up on prepositions and things that were used differently when our Bibles were translated, you know, and, and also the wording of it is not something that we're familiar to. Yes. Hey, there you go. Amen. Yep, yep. So, 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 what should we what what should we come away with this from? We should come away from this with the idea that baptism never saved anybody. Okay, if 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 the mikvah. Okay, listen to this. If the mikvah made somebody truly, completely, totally right with God, why are we having sacrifices? Why is there a day of atonement? Why is there Yom Kippur? Why is there trespass offering, sin offering, peace offering? Why is there all these different things for offerings? You know, um, why didn't God tell Adam and Eve, go wash in the mikvah? No, instead he killed an animal and clothed them with its skins. Um, that was the first sacrifice. Um, and so... Baptism or the mikvah, okay, it was always an act of obedience, of wanting to be clean before God. Um, but also, especially as things transpired between Leviticus and Matthew, okay, as things transpired, the mikvah became a public thing. So others could see. On that video, okay, they have somebody watch you. They have somebody watch you to make sure, you, if you're a woman, you're not allowed to have your hair all braided, okay? Every single part, every single hair needs to touch the water. Anyway, they have somebody watch you when you're baptized, okay? It might seem like, okay, that guy just goes in the water by himself and da-da-da-da-da. But they have somebody watch you to make sure that you did it, to validate that you did. It's a public thing. It's a showing of, I want to be right with God ritually. And that's kind of what John brought it into, repent. You know, come and show me that you're repentant. 
by getting in this water publicly. It wasn't some kind of private thing. It was public. And so showing that we've accepted Christ as our Savior by baptism, it's the most logical thing if you understand the Jewish background. It's not that saves you. That's like the epitome of getting the cart before the horse. The baptism is to show that you've been saved publicly, to publicly demonstrate what already happened inwardly. So that's what I say. Yes. Yep. Yep. And if you're ashamed, if you're ashamed of your testimony, okay, if you're ashamed of Christ to the point where you don't want to publicly profess by baptism, then you got a whole other problem. Yep. But, but countless souls have, have gone to heaven and are there now in the presence of the Lord, having never been baptized. Okay? Because baptism does not save. Okay? Yes, absolutely. That's the word I was looking for, thief. The thief on the cross. He didn't have time to get baptized, join a church, you know, give his tithe. Any other, any other questions or comments? This was, a, this was a good discussion tonight. Okay, well, let's close in a word of prayer. Okay. Thank you, Lord, once again so much for your love, for your care for us. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4400. Seven, seven. Shalom.